All right, our first question. I would appreciate it if you would give me your thoughts on the whole concept of inviting Jewish students into our schools and addressing all five points I have laid out below. Uh, would our church ever go for such an approach to our Jewish brothers and sisters? Well, your last question, would our church ever go for such an approach to our Jewish brothers and sisters? I cannot answer because I do not speak for the organized church. If you're interested, um, uh, write to one of the representatives of the Adventist system and inquire of their opinion of that. So I'm not going to speak to that question. But the points you've listed below, I will comment on. First point are, um, about about um, Jewish students in our schools. Our SDA schools could be just what our Jewish friends need till the heat of the war abides. I, I, as I, I, I want to thank you for this because it gives us opportunity to, to co co contemplate and, and, and process. Uh, I think our, our SDA schools could be what any human being needs, Jewish or not Jewish, because it presents a, a message for this time in human history about our Savior and the second coming that's soon to come. And I think it would be a wonderful thing for, for any human being to get this message, as I understand our place in history. Um, there is one human race created in Adam and Eve that fell into sin. And all human beings, including the Jewish people, are descended of Adam and Eve, and we all suffer from the same sin condition. And we, there's only one solution for the sin condition, that's Jesus Christ, and we all need the same solution. So to the degree that we can help any human being, including our Jewish friends, uh, come to the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ, it would be a wonderful thing. So I, 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 I like that idea. I just don't see any connection between their being benefited during the heat of the war, though, I don't see any link to that. I'm not following that logic. Uh, the idea that somehow they would benefit while the heat of the war, till the heat of the war dates. Uh, if there are terrorists seeking to uh, kill a certain group of people, and you move those group of people from one location to another location, well, the terrorists follow to the new location. So it seems to me, that if it's if we're focusing on the the persecution of this heat of the war by a terrorist group and we bring them into our schools, then we make our schools the, the targets for terrorists because they would still want to kill them no matter where they're at. So I'm not really seeing the linkage um, with, uh, with the war elements. Next one. Our schools are vegetarian. There would be no problem in meeting kosher standards. Well, to a certain degree, it wouldn't have the elements with milk and meat, but uh, my understanding of kosher is more than just that. It also has to require the entire kitchen and staff and everything else be authorized by the right rabbinical authorities to meet kosher standards. So that would be inspections of the entire facility, but that could pot potentially be done. Three, we could even learn modern Hebrew from the teachers, from their teachers, seeing that, uh, seeing that after 2,000 years it is now a living language again. Well, we certainly could, but why would we need the students to come to our facilities to learn modern Hebrew? If we value the modern Hebrew language and we want to learn it, why can't we just have instructors like we have Spanish and French and German instructors in our schools now? So I'm not really seeing the linkage of why we would need to do that in order to learn modern Hebrew. And modern Hebrew is related to biblical Hebrew, like modern English is related to Middle English. If you got a book from Middle English, you really couldn't read it because it's a different language than than our current English. The languages evolve. A living language is in constant flux. Four, theologically, Adventists have tried to recover all of the original church's Ephesus beliefs and practices. 
we could have some real interesting discussions with our fellow Jewish students. Well, I actually think that would be great. I think it would be many interesting discussions to discuss with Jewish people, how they see the Old Testament, how we see the Old Testament, how they see those Jewish converts in the first century um, worshiping the Messiah and, and, and how they don't see that worship being valuable and genuine. I think there would be very interesting discussions. I would agree with that. And then the fifth question, Revelation 7 details the ceiling of the 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel. Why would Jesus list each one of the tribes if they were only symbolic of all the translated saved? Could it be possible that there are a more concrete meaning? Have we become so stagnant in growth of our spiritual understanding that we can't let the Jews have a designation of the 144,000? So this series of questions has multiple false premises and false assumptions in them. Um, first off, the first false premise or assumption is that the 12 tribes are listed there. They're not. I will detail that in a moment. Second false assumption is that um, the 144,000 is symbolic of all the translated. That's not ever taught anywhere in Scripture. That's uh, co Bible commentators and people reading into it and trying to understand the meaning of it. But it's actually not representative of all the saved of history. Uh, third false assumption is that the that the 144,000 means literal Jews. So there's multiple false assumptions in this. The book of Revelation is a highly symbolic book. Almost everything in Revelation is symbolism of some other reality. And if we don't understand the reality, then we miss the symbolism. When it comes to the 12, the, the 12 tribes at this time in history, the 12 tribes, um, if you recall, the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem has 12 gates. And on each one of the gates, there are um, one of the names of the 12 tribes. And the foundation of the New Jerusalem is the 12 apostles. And so the gates are, are representative people making their way into the New Jerusalem, which is founded upon the, new, uh, of the truth of the 12 apostles taught. If you look in the Old Testament symbolism, the sanctuary, when it was set up, it was set up with, and there were not 12 tribes, there were 13 tribes. There were the Levites, which camped on all four sides, and then there were three tribes on the four sides because Joseph got a double inheritance, and the tribe of Joseph was represented by Manasseh and Ephraim. And so Manasseh and Ephraim, um, two portions to Joseph, uh, were, uh, with Levi, made 13 tribes. And in the symbolism, the Levites represent the priests of the believers, and the sanctuary represents coming back into that one minute or unity with God, God's plan of salvation. The Levites are camping between the rest of the tribes and at one minute with God. They represent the priests of the believers who go out into the world to bring the rest of the world into conversion and into unity with Christ. And thus the other 12 tribes represent the unconverted peoples of the world that the priests of the believers are to witness to. This is a symbolism of, this, of, of the Old Testament. That symbolism is taken over now into Revelation. And in Revelation, at the end of time, God is saying there will be a group of people from all the corners of the earth who are sealed in their foreheads. And if you remember, it says in Revelation 7, an angel comes from the um, heaven saying to the angels holding back the four winds of strife, hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. And the servants of God in Scripture, you can find this in multiple places, so many are the prophets of God. And the prophets of God are not prognosticators. The prophets of God are his spokespeople, the people who come from God with a message for the people. And so Revelation 7 is saying, 
that the angels of God are holding back the four winds of strife until God's spokespersons are sealed in their forehead, being so subtle in truth they can't be moved. And those spokespersons are represented by the 144,000 from the 12 tribes that are listed. And those 12 tribes then would symbolically represent the four corners of the earth. And so God is saying, I have people in all groups of the earth who will be settled into the truth about me, and then the four winds loosen, and a tribulation and troubles begin to happen, and from their witness, a great multitude from every nation, kindred, tribe, and people will come to the earth. If you actually look then at the 12 tribes in Revelation, they are not the original 12 tribes. One tribe is missing, and that's the tribe of Dan. Dan is no longer listed. And in fact, in Dan's place, while Joseph is listed instead of Joseph and Ephraim, which was what was listed, excuse me, instead of Ephraim and Manasseh, which is what is listed um, around the Levitical, uh, in the Levitical order back in Leviticus when they set up the, the tabernacle, Joseph was not listed. Um, Ephraim and um, Manasseh were listed for Joseph's two portions. In Revelation, Joseph is listed and Manasseh is listed. Now, this is very interesting because... Dan is removed, and if you actually then take the names of the children of Israel, names of the children of Jacob, those names have meaning. Each name has a meaning. Has a, it symbolically represents an idea or a concept. For instance, Reuben uh, represents a son is born. Simeon represents one who hears. Levi represents being attached or belonging to. Judah is praise the Lord. Dan is judgment or judged. Uh, Naphtali is uh, my struggle. Gad is good fortune. Uh, Asher is happiness. Issachar is reward. Zebulun is honor. Joseph is, is, is added to the family. And uh, Benjamin is son of righteousness. And so historically, if you look at the, the order, uh, if you look at the order of their birth, I just went through the order of the 12 sons in their birth, you would could say, and put the meanings in, it would be, behold, the son is born unto us, one who hears and becomes attached to us. Praise the Lord. He judges. He judged our struggle and brought us good fortune, happiness, reward, honor, and added us to the family and called us sons of righteousness. <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the 12 sons in their birth order, and that's their birth order. Reuben first, Simeon second, Levi third, Judah fourth. Notice in Revelation the order of the 12 tribes. They're not in their birth order, and Dan is not included. They're in the order of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi. And Manasseh, which replaces Dan, does not mean judgment. It means forgetting. That's what Manasseh means, forgetting. And so the message now reads, Praise the Lord, for God's Son was born to us and has brought us good fortune of his remedy, healing us and restoring us to happiness, and our struggle is now, forgot, is now forgotten by him who hears, heard our plea and joined himself to us and ransomed us from sin. Through him we now receive eternal reward and are honored to be part of God's heavenly family, sons and daughters of righteousness. So, no, I wouldn't go the route of thinking literal biologic descendants of, of the Jews. That would be a route to dupe one or deceive one at the end of time and obstruct the actual plan that God has for the whole world, including the Jewish people. Does the resuming of temple services in 164 BC and the temple dedication in John 10 have any application to our time? 
Jesus re-clears the second temple despite it being cleared, cleaned, or cleansed in 164 BC. Does Jesus need to cleanse, restore, and, in, and innovate spiritual temple function in addition to Daniel 8.14 cleansing? In, is the sanctuary still being defiled by false deity worship in 2024 and thus needing to be eradicated and so forth and so on? So the Old Testament sanctuary service, whether it was the, the tent, whether it was Solomon's temple, whether it was the second temple, all of it is theater, theater, theater. It was a great stage with really neat props and cool costumes that had a script that we call scripture that they followed to theatrically act out the plan of salvation. But the theater had no power to save it was all just theater, object lesson, symbol, metaphor, to teach the reality. And the reality is, of course, Jesus Christ cleansing the spirit temple, the hearts and minds of people from sin. And thus Jesus cleansing the sanctuary was symbolic of his plan to cleanse the hearts and minds of all of the lust and passions and sinfulness and selfishness that was being acted out by the Jewish rabbinical leaders who were cheating people and turned the house into a house of market and selfish exploitation of the innocent and so forth. So he's throwing all that over and saying the hearts and minds of sinful people must be cleansed. And the real cleansing of the sanctuary, which started in 1844, is the cleansing of the hearts and minds of the people to prepare us to meet him when he comes. And I encourage you to get our magazine, um, the wedding of Christ to his bride, the cleansing of the church, the cleansing or cleansing, wedding of Christ, the cleansing of the bride, preparing the bride to meet Christ, because I go through in this in, in detail. If you want something that has some of the 1844 Adventist materials in it, then, then, then go online and get the um, investigative judgment for the modern world magazine, which will present it with more of the historical documents of the Adventist church. I mix with many who have sub subjected to the government abuse in the longest lockdown city in the world. It also appears to be under constant geoengineering, long periods of cloud, rain, uh, rare glimpses of the sun. Many are expressing low, tired, weary they are, uh, how weary they are, and still finding it difficult to see a positive future. They constantly feel on edge and feel uh, this is a law between the next attack. I'm struggling to know how to help them uh, by fixing our eyes on Christ, seriously. If you get caught up in trying to solve this world geopolitical, um, um, world-dominant geopolitical beastly system that's rising, you're wasting your energy. It's going to rise. We don't. We are not going to. Uh, we should view ourselves very much like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Babylonian system of end-time beastly powers is going to rise up around us, and we will be captives physical captives in this world, but Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not captives in their heart, mind, and spirit. They were free, and they, and they stayed loyal to God. We must have that distinction made between our heart's affections and loyalties to the kingdom of God, and we live out the methods and principles of God and how we govern ourselves and how we treat other people, uh, and stop trying to engage to, to fix the problems of this corrupt world. Satan is playing two worldly systems off each other. And he's been doing this through time. Go back and read our blogs on the King of the North and King of the South. His two general systems are godlessness, paganism, 
atheism, today modern communism and leftism, against uh, re uh, religious imperialism. Those who believe in God, Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and Rome, uh, these imperial beliefs in the Bible, God, but then will use the power of the state to force people to comply. These have been his two worldly systems all along, and he plays them back and forth along against each other with the beautiful land, the God's people in the middle, trying to get the people of God to choose either to give up on God and become godless and pagan, or to embrace an imperial dictator God concept so that we'll join with the powers of the state to coerce the consciences of other people. Both are fraudulent. And, and this is what's happening. He keeps raising the stakes with the leftist movement right now with more outrageous, transgender, just irrational garbage that is designed to or outrage you to the point that you will say, yes, let's, let's use the state to punish them and put them down and force our ways upon other people. That's the trap. We have to actually be more like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who live godly principles but leave other people free. Let's face it, we know God, we know, let's face it, we know COVID was a trial run on how, uh, so how do we stay positive about going through something similar in the future? I just described how we do that. I have a very rules-oriented, religiously-minded members of my church that have attacked my pastor and me, that we undermine the sanctity of the Sabbath commandment when we present level six and seven moral development understandings to its uh, significance in the great controversy. In what other manner would you suggest I help them see God's law as design law to not have such a behavior in all the things we teach? Uh, it's, it's every, what we did today. How, what, what happens to the wicked in the end? What happens when you use coercion and force? Can you get love, friendship, loyalty, trust, devotion by threatening to kill people who give it? I mean, this is what we do in every lesson. So I wouldn't ask, harp a lot on the Sabbath right now. Uh, I would move away from that and show the practical applications of the two systems and then use all the different metaphors, the parables of Christ and how they're all about design law and how you cannot get uh, the transformation of heart and love and trust by using threat to kill people who don't. Next, I am a Formula One mechanic engineer. Not really. This is my contemporary allegory. Starting in February, every year, every second Sabbath, we do testing and prepare for the racing season ahead. We test every second Sabbath and race on Sundays. My, my day, days off during the racing season are Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I love the Lord with all my heart and share the gospel through my work and care for my team. I am in conflict with my newfound understanding of Am I in conflict with my newfound understanding of Sabbath based on your ministry's findings. Oh, do you see the trap question here, folks? Do you see it? So let's answer the question. Let's answer from scripture. So I'll start with Isaiah chapter 58, 13 and 14. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your fathers. The first point is there is no Sabbath keeping if it's not done from freedom and liberty and a delight. 
you can legal if you legally observe rule keeping when your heart is not in it, but you're going to obey the rules. You're not a Sabbath keeper. It doesn't matter what behaviors you do on that day. If it is not a delight for you, you will not find your joy in the Lord. You will find resentment and rebellion and look for ways to get around the rules. Uh, but continue on with the question, Romans 14, 5. One man considers one day more sacred than the other. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And so I would tell you, what you do on the Sabbath, you must be fully persuaded in your own mind is the right thing to do. And, and your conscience must be cleared. And no other person can tell you what that is for you to do. And then an example from Jesus' experience when he was on the earth. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain field, and his disciples walked along with him, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Why are you doing your uh, auto mechanic stuff on the Sabbath? Uh, he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need in the day of Abathar, the high priest? He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which was lawful only for the priest to do. And he also gave some, of, some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to us. It's a resource. It's an opportunity for our blessing. We use it in, in the way God designed it. We are blessed by this gift. If we don't, we lose the blessing. This is the reality. So in your metaphor, are you being blessed? Are you using it? And ultimately, it is not about the action of the deed because 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks on the outward appearance, the deeds, the tasks, the behaviors, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is what being persuaded in your own mind. So at the end of the day, you have to decide if you're keeping the Sabbath in the way the Lord would have you to keep it. I could never say that for you. Uh, so next question, it says, Genesis 4, 16, uh, Eden was on earth then. Uh, is Eden still on earth today, or should I ask uh, where on earth we find Eden? There is nothing in Scripture that I know of that specifically answers this question. It was on earth, and we don't find it on earth after the flood. That's all that I know that Scripture says about it. Ellen White, if you value her commentary on the Bible, she says that the Eden remained on the earth with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, with the angels barring the way, as described in Genesis, up until the flood. At the flood, God removed Eden from the earth and will restore it to the earth at the end of the thousand years when the earth is made new. That's her view of it. She actually says that Adam, at that time, will find vines that he has trained with his own hand and recognize those vines and, and other things that he has trained with his own hand. That's an interesting insight, if, if it turns out to be true, and I, I personally believe it, it to be true, because it implies something. What does it imply if that's true? It, it, it implies a time dilation or distortion. If you planted a vine and you let 6,000 years go by and it grows on its own for 6,000 years, will it be in the same 
general way you had crafted it or will nature have caused it to grow in ways that you wouldn't recognize over 6,000 years? Okay. So the fact that he still recognizes his handiwork in the vine, if that's true, it suggests that not much time has passed. You can then connect that with Peter's statement that with the day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And with the other Bible uh, and Jesus himself, that if he goes, he will come back quickly. Uh, and even so, Lord, come quickly. And these types of things about the second coming. So there is one uh, idea that on earth, time passes at a different speed than it does in heaven. That on earth, for every 6,000 years of our linear existence in heaven, one day has passed. And so that by the time we're done and Jesus returns, six 24-hour periods have passed in heaven while we have had 6,000 years of time pass on earth. And thus that the plant and the training that Adam did to the garden in the Garden of Eden will have only been six days different from when Adam saw it last. That is an argument to be made. Uh, it's all speculation. I don't find anything that violates anything in Scripture, so I'm open to that possibility. But I certainly won't be dogmatic about it and will remain open to see what actually transpires when it happens. May God bless come in reason. I am watching a newly married couple just have a baby. One parent isn't getting the, quote, worship, unquote, received that they got before the arrival uh, and selfishly is preventing the attention of the other spouse from being given to the baby. Is there any, is there a blog that describes this? I searched it, but couldn't find it. So I don't describe this as a theme. I use this as an example to describe the, the, the validity of the Trinity. And so if you type R, R in Trinity and then read the two blogs in the Trinity, this example is used in one of those two blogs that true love only really exists, true godly love, in a minimum of three. Because when there is just two, you can have narcissistic adoration and reinforcement. But three requires the self-sacrifice uh, for the benefit of the third. And that's what is demonstrated here that's not happening. Close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are God of love, of perfect, other-centered, self-sacrificial love. We ask that you will pour your spirit into our hearts to reproduce Christ within, that we can live your truth and love this coming week, and that we can be lights in this world to advance your kingdom and see you come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Thank you all. I'll see you in person next week.